0: Welcome to Tech Stuff, a production from iHeartRadio. Hey there, and welcome to Tech Stuff. I'm your host, Jonathan Strickland. I'm an executive producer with iHeartRadio, and I love all things tech, and I had to rush through that intro, ladies, gentlemen, everybody. I have to talk to my good friend, Bridget, host of There Are No Girls on the Internet, who has joined the show today to talk about a very serious topic But before we get into that, Bridget, it is so nice to have you on the show.
1: It's so nice to be here. I'm so excited. You know, we connect every week just via phone, and it's nice to be connecting in people's earbuds in podcast land.
0: Yeah. So Bridget has been hosting an incredible show, There Are No Girls on the Internet. If you haven't heard it already, you absolutely need to seek it out. And Specifically, I wanted to bring her on the show to talk about a uh, season two theme that you've really done a lot of hard work on, uh, Disinformed, because we're going to be talking about misinformation, disinformation, and the promotion of that through algorithms. But Bridget, I want in your own words, why don't you talk a bit about there are no girls on the internet in general and uh, Disinformed in particular.
1: Yeah, so There Are No Girls on the Internet was really born from this idea that we know that marginalized people, underrepresented people, women, communities of color, other folks from underrepresented backgrounds have had such a huge impact on technology. And honestly, just what makes the internet a fun, great place? Like how many times is there a hilarious hashtag or a hilarious Vine or a hilarious video on TikTok that goes viral that you're seeing everywhere and the person behind it is a woman or a person of color? And so I really wanted to carve out a space where we could really highlight and celebrate and amplify all the amazing impacts that people from underrepresented backgrounds have had on the internet. And so that's why I started There Are No Girls on the Internet. It's been a really fun journey to really talk about some of the ways that underrepresented folks either show up or don't show up online. And from making that show, one of the things that came up for me again and again was the role that disinformation and distorted media stories fake news bad you know um things like online harassment radicalization how these same underrepresented people who are showing up making up making great content online making the internet such a fun place those same people are really at the forefront of a lot of this stuff right you know when it comes to disinformation communities of color are the most impacted women are the most impacted but we are the same ones who are doing a lot of the research and a lot of the work to fight back and I was really fascinated by that. I was fascinated by the human center of of disinformation. I think with a lot of tech, it can be hard to remember that it's really about people, you know, that people at at the other end of screens or the other end of phones. And disinformation was a situation where it really was important to me to center those people and make sure that their stories were at the forefront.
0: You bring up a point that I think is good for us to lay out right at the very beginning, because while we're going to be talking about social media platforms, specifically platforms like Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, those sort of things, and to another extent, some of the more uh, extreme social networks that are out there that are heavily promoting things like radicalization within the confines of those own communities. While we're going to talk about that, we have to remember that's one piece of a very big, very complicated puzzle. Uh, The the pathway to extremism or radicalization is not a one-lane highway where everybody goes the exact same way. There's usually a lot of different factors at play, and if we're being completely honest, we still don't really have a full understanding of what weighted... Uh, uh, factors are the most important, right? Like obviously, being in person with groups that are uh, proselytizing uh, extremist views and are reinforcing when new people come into the community that those extremist views are legitimate and and reinforcing whenever someone expresses an extremist view. That's clearly very important. And when it happens in a real space, meet space. Uh, it can have a huge impact. But we also know that online interactions also can play a big part, especially as we have embraced them uh, more wholeheartedly in the last decade and clearly in a situation like we are in now where a lot of us are at home and the only interactions we're mostly having with other people are online, uh, we're seeing that online radicalization is in fact a a factor as well. But to what extent it is as effective or ineffective as others, that's something that's under academic debate. So we're going to have this discussion, but we do want to make it clear that there are no absolutes that we know of yet. These are all things that are under study and consideration. It's more that we're trying to kind of take stock of what's going on and what elements could be playing a part uh, in the in the process of someone encountering extremist views and the possibility of getting wrapped up in that. Um, so with that in mind, let's talk about social media. One thing I noticed, uh, I, I decided to do a quick search, Bridget, before we jumped on this call, and I, I found a, a Pew Research survey from a couple of years ago, that was looking at uh, what percentage of people were getting some or most of their news through social networking sites, primarily Facebook. And at this point, it's around 55% of adults get either uh, some of their news through social media or practically all of their news through social media. So obviously a social platform plays a big part in the way we access information that we then try to incorporate into our lives.
1: Yeah, I think, so I know that study. I'm glad that you grounded it in it, our conversation in that study. You know, as someone who tracks and, and talks and thinks a lot about the way that platforms operate and the role they have in our society, for a long time, platforms like Facebook would say that they were just neutral platforms. You know, they did not need to take any kind of editorial strategy because they're just neutral platforms. And I think that Pew study that 55% of adults get some some aspect of their news from from these platforms really shows how that's not always the case. You know, you have I, I think that tech leaders should be thinking about their platform policies based on the role they actually play in their users' lives. And if most users are saying, hey, I use your platforms to get my news, then maybe you do need to have a little bit of editorial strategy right maybe you do need to have policies in place to make sure that it's that it's being used in safe and responsible ways i'm glad that we have moved away from that thinking that's like oh it is not my if i run a platform it is not my responsibility to have any kind of policing or policies around what is on that platform which i think was the conversation for so long
0: yeah i i think the interesting thing to me is that um You will hear a lot of debate in 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 America about Section 230, which is a specific uh, piece of legislation that provides online platforms uh, some legal immunity from the sort of stuff that their users might uh, post to those platforms, saying that they are not responsible for the things that their users share. And the hope of the people who actually drafted that legislation was that it was going to be a two-pronged thing. It would allow platforms to establish themselves because otherwise they would constantly be under legal threat and nothing would ever gain any traction because this legislation was proposed in the 90s when the World Wide Web was very young. And the second part was that they were really hoping it was going to lead to... Uh, to moderation practices on these platforms, that the platforms would moderate the material that was being posted to them without fear of legal action against them for doing so, that they would be given that freedom. And the problem or one of the problems is that a lot of these platforms embrace the first part where they're (laughs) not held responsible for the stuff that people post to them, but they didn't go so hard on the second part where they actually moderate the material. And we've seen that time and again because, uh, we've seen it on Facebook. We've seen it a lot on YouTube. I mean, the, the whole, uh, uh controversy a couple of years ago about the, the various bizarre and sometimes very disturbing videos that were showing up on YouTube's children oriented service shows that, uh, they weren't really looking at it from that perspective for multiple reasons. And we'll get into some of those a little bit later because it does tie into the algorithm side too. Uh, The other part, Pew study that I saw that was interesting and disheartening is a separate study found that people who gained most of their news from social media sites were in general less engaged and less knowledgeable about the subject matter than those who were consuming it from uh, multiple sources. So if you were someone who, yeah, you got some of your news from social platforms, but you also got some of your news from journals or newspapers or television or radio or whatever, you generally had a better understanding of subject matter. And this to me almost sounds like the problem of people reading a headline never clicking through to read and digest the content and basing their entire response on the headline and maybe comments that are placed underneath an article that's been posted to Facebook, let's say, Uh, which is uh, really upsetting as someone who has an English background. I mean, uh, especially, and for us, like we've worked in media, we know there's a special skill in creating headlines that, doesn't necessarily relate back to the content of the piece that it's attached to, or it's it's some minor element that is elevated in order to gain attention. So this, to me, is another issue. And this is before we even get into purposeful misinformation. This can just be a misunderstanding because you didn't take the time to read the full material.
1: Oh, absolutely. I, I can... I'm. I can say so much about this. Um, So I got my, one of the places that I've worked in my life was MSNBC, I was on their digital team. And so our job was essentially framing stories on social media in ways that were going to get them clicks and, you know, attention online. And so we also had access to metrics so we could actually see how people were engaging with this content. and the amount of times that people share stories on Facebook that, they, that we can see on the back end that they have not actually clicked in to read would frighten you. But it was our job to kind of exploit that. And so we learned that, you know, oh, people like to share articles where it seems like they're trying to indicate something about themselves. Like this article makes them look thoughtful or um, interesting or unique or well-read really informed. um, And so they want to project that to the rest of their followers. So they share it. But those same stories are the ones that people aren't clicking in to read. And so it really is not surprising to me that people who get their media and news from social media primarily are less informed and less engaged because I think these media ecosystems really prioritize that. I think that they built a media landscape that prioritizes Sharing without reading thoughtfully, right? Like everything happens so quickly on the internet. I feel like that is what's the, really the priority. And I also think just our our media landscape has really changed. I grew up in a household where we got the newspaper. We've got multiple newspapers in my home. And we have to, you know, note the ways that our our journalism industry has really been, uh, you know, um decimated. And so it's not surprising to me that as small local papers that are putting out, local, relevant, timely information right on your doorstep, as those begin to shut their doors, more and more people are turning to social media, which is in turn making them less informed. Like, this is not a surprise to me.
0: Right. I I have a great example to give you, Bridget. It's a very recent one. And I think it's one you'll appreciate, which is that uh, uh, as I record this, I think we're like a day out from when a trailer for a new Mortal Kombat movie came out. And over on Jezebel, a writer wrote an article with the title, Why Isn't Chun-Li in the Mortal Kombat movie? And for those who aren't schooled in Mortal Kombat, Chun-Li's not a character from Mortal Kombat. She's a character from Street Fighter. Street Fighter. (laughs) Different franchise, right? But that was the headline. If you read the article, there were hints in the article that this was a joke. That there was a point where she's, they say, if in the ultimate street fight, Chun-Li needs to be there. Indicating, yes, the author knows that Chun-Li doesn't live in Mortal Kombat world, that Chun-Li lives in Street Fighter world. But it was almost like a, like a social experiment. And of course, Twitter went nuts and everybody started slamming this article saying, look how stupid this person is. They don't even know that Chun-Li's not in Mortal Kombat. Which made me say, all this is telling me is which of you guys failed to read the article. Because if you had read the article, you would have seen it was a joke, you would have recognized it as satire, and you would know that that this was a windup the whole time. You're really just falling into the trap that the writer set at this point. And it's just the perfect microcosm of this, this tendency. And I think that posting links to, to news articles has almost become a shortcut for a comment. It's almost like a comment or a GIF or an emoji, right? It's a way for someone to say, here is my thought on that uh, in headline form, even though you may not have clicked through to read the actual article underneath. Or you're just, you're looking for something that supports whatever, position you're taking on any particular topic, whether it's something lighthearted in pop culture or it's something really serious. And it has to do with like politics or health. And I see that a lot too, where people are clearly grabbing uh, articles. They're just doing like the down and dirty Google search to find something that looks like it supports their position and uses that in place. So again, this is all before you even get to purposeful Misinformation or disinformation. It may be that the sources that you pull from are misinformation, but it may be that they're totally legit. You just don't know the context for it. so you're just you're just throwing things at the wall to see what sticks. And uh, so we're doing a lot of the work ourselves is part of it. Like we have created a a kind of culture that supports the sharing of misinformation. But the flip side of that coin is these platforms, are optimized for the sharing of misinformation and the elevation of misinformation. And that's really the part that we can look at more critically and say, in what ways is this happening and uh, and and how culpable are these platforms for that process? Uh, keeping in mind that in most cases, I think we would argue that ultimately there are other people not connected to the platforms who are generating the the content that's getting elevated there but the platforms are benefiting from that um so let's talk a little bit about that and and what is going on with these platforms and why we want to even talk about algorithms uh so just so you guys out there know an algorithm is essentially just a a list of instructions it's a you can think of it like a program, it doesn't have to be a program, but it's essentially a list of instructions that guides some sort of process. And in the case of social networks, essentially what we talk about when we say algorithm is, it's the bit of that platform that decides what content you see in what order you see it. So for YouTube, it could be the recommendation engine where you're watching one video and then you've got a whole bunch of other videos recommended all on the side. So for me, it's all uh, cute animal videos. I, I wish I could lie and say it wasn't. I'm a punk rock kind of guy, but it's all kitten and puppy videos, sometimes a sloth. Um, and Facebook, it's it's which posts you see in which order. You know, everyone gets frustrated that they're not seeing it in a reverse chronological order. Well, that's by design. And it, as users, we think of it as it's the algorithm that shows us what is potentially next on our docket. For the platforms, algorithms exist solely because the platform wants to keep people on it for as long as possible because that's how the platforms make money. It's through advertising. uh, It's through the, uh, the commoditization of people's personal information that they generate while they're on that platform. And the longer you're on it, the more the platform makes. So... The algorithms are, are I would argue, amoral. They don't really care what it is they're serving up as long as it keeps you there. And that, I think, is the core of the problem.
1: Absolutely a thousand percent correct. I think that tech platforms need to be held accountable for the ways that their algorithms have really just taken advantage of a lot of human nature's not so great tendencies, right? Humans, listen, we all know humans are terrible, right? We are lazy. We make rash, snap decisions, myself very much included. We will smash that share button, smash that like button, smash that comment button on an article that frankly we have not read and we're just putting our uninformed opinion out there. I am guilty of all of this, right? Platforms essentially algorithms have rewarded that kind of behavior, that kind of quick behavior, snap decision-making, and created this this media landscape where the citizenry is less informed, less engaged, and more primed for bad actors to disinform and misinform them. And I think the way that you put it, it, it is completely correct. And I think, you know, I I I say this all the time on my own podcast, I want to One of the reasons why I'm very interested in disinformation is because I think it's a good example of the way that algorithmic thinking has really failed us. You know, I want to build an Internet that prioritizes and privileges things like thoughtfulness or, you know, discourse or really engaging with opinions that are different from your own. And I feel like algorithms and platforms have given us the opposite. It's a media landscape that rewards quick decision making and being less engaged and less thoughtful and engaging less. And thus leaving people really able to be exploited by people who do want to push misinformation and disinformation. And I think when platforms like Facebook get rich off of it, we really have to ask some questions. You know, Facebook's own internal report says that 64% of the time when somebody joins an extremist Facebook group, it's because Facebook itself recommended it, right? They should not then be getting more money based on something that they admit has such a corrosive impact on our society.
0: Hey guys, Jonathan from the future here, just coming in to say, we're going to take a quick break with our conversation with Bridget Todd of there are no girls on the internet, and we will be back right after this break. You can't play both sides of the issue saying, uh, we don't have any responsibility we're we're neutral we're just a platform that people post to and then also reap in the billions of dollars generated through the process of radicalization if you are directly profiting from that process you are at least in some way culpable for it you can't like it, the idea of being able to wash your hands and walk away is uh, alien to me. I can't imagine being able to shed that kind of responsibility. And, uh, you know, we talk about Facebook revenue in the billions of dollars every single quarter. It's not not billions of dollars per year. Every quarter that company is making billions. And a lot of this is because of these algorithms that, you know, Facebook's, uh, their value proposition is that they can put, very specific groups of people in front of very specific content and it's it's because they the the Facebook engine learns so much about us and what how we interact that it can start predicting the things that we're going to react to next and thus serve up that stuff in front of us and sure enough we're bound to act on it and in If this were a world where radicalization wasn't a thing, that would mostly mean we would all be buying more crap and that would be the worst of it. But we're seeing, and the same thing's true of YouTube, right? That YouTube, Google, when you log in to YouTube, not if you're just browsing it like without being logged in, but if you're logged in to YouTube, it is constantly tweaking your profile of the sort of things that you interact with, both on and off the site. And building on that and determining what you want to see next. In fact, there were there was a study that was self-published, not even peer-reviewed. I hesitate to even bring it up. But there was one report that was published a couple of years ago where a pair of, of researchers, and I use the term lightly, uh, argued that YouTube wasn't, contributing to radicalization. And they had this whole thing where they talked about watching different styles of videos and seeing what got recommended next. Except for one tiny little thing. They didn't log into YouTube. They were they were watching it without logging in. And it's the login process where Google starts to build that profile, figuring out, oh, well, they're interacting with a lot of content that's in, say, the video game space. That's another one that I watch a lot of. So now I get puppies and kittens and video games, not all in the same video. They're separate, but I get a good mix. Um, But if I were, if I were to start watching uh, videos that were, let's say a little to the far right or the far left of the spectrum, uh, then the, those algorithms start working and start determining what other sort of videos might I respond well to. And based upon my activities on the site, it tweaks those weightings, right? It says, it's like machine learning. It says, all right, well, we saw that they that this person spent an hour when we shared this kind of video, so let's push even harder on that and see if we can get that engagement up even more. And from the platform side, they're just thinking, how can we maximize this person's time on our platform and make the most money? But it's it's the same general approach as trying to radicalize someone where you're trying to continually serve them up information from a very specific ideology and to reinforce that over and over. It just so happens that these two things are aligned with one another. And so from that algorithmic standpoint, we see the process of radicalization somewhat automated. And that is where the real concerns are. And we know that this is Still a thing. There was a a report just earlier this month about how researchers were still finding that extremist videos would get pop up in the recommendation uh, sidebar if you were to to watch them. Whereas YouTube's been working pretty hard to 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 call that, but it's still happening. So this is I, I can't see how if you run a social. A media platform that has an algorithm to determine what order you see stuff in, how you can step back and say you're not responsible for at least playing a role in leading people toward extremism.
1: I mean, I wish I had that ability to wash my hands of responsibility of things that I don't want to, you know be responsible for, but it's difficult to see how people, how tech leaders cannot see their culpability in this. Just as you described, it's it's very difficult to make the argument that they don't have a responsibility when these kinds of things by their own metrics are happening on their platform. It's very clear. Study after study after study, particularly on YouTube, which frankly, you know, in all of the conversations we've been having about, having about, you know, platform accountability, I've been surprised the way that Uh, YouTube has really been able to kind of skirt a lot of that heat. Like we talk a lot about Facebook, we talk about Twitter, but YouTube, I I don't know how they've done it, but they've been able to sort of sidestep that conversation, which I think is really not good considering the role they do play in radicalization. You know, I think that we really, I'm very curious how they've been able to avoid that kind of responsibility for so long. Your point about platforms, I think is such a good one in that if there, if if we didn't, if we lived in a world that did not have radical views or extremist views, even then, I would I would want to ask questions about whether or not these platforms are actually doing good or doing harm. I remember this time. This is kind of a weird story, but I was going through a breakup and I was still following my ex on Facebook, and it was one of those breakups where I was like, you know, like it was really getting me down. And I realized Facebook must have sensed that. Uh, that my relationship with this other account was something was going on there. So every little update that I got about my ex, Facebook was like shoving it in my face. And I realized a platform can make you feel bad about yourself. A platform can make you, if it has the power to shift you to extremist ideology or extremist thinking or political content, it has that power to really shape how we feel in our day to day. I, I wish it wasn't true, but it is. And so I think even from that perspective, it is completely fair to step back and ask, well, how are these platforms contributing to harm, whether it's extremist content or just how someone feels in their day to day, like if they feel like they're able to step away from platforms, if platforms have prioritized amount of time on screen or amount of time on a page or what have you, is that kind of thinking doing harm in society? I think it's completely fair to ask these questions. And I think, you know, I would like platforms, I would like tech leaders and that people that, you know, use these te- these technologies to have that conversation. But I feel like getting to a point where we're all on the same page has just been so tough.
0: Yeah. Uh and I, I would say that the the efforts we have seen uh kind of illustrate the point you're making, Bridget, in that we see these tech companies occasionally respond when things come to a point where there's no other option. They have to respond, right? They're called before Congress, perhaps that's happened multiple times now, uh, or they are under pressure because of advertisers that don't want to be associated with things that are spiraling out of control. Uh, we see that uh, those cases when hap- things get to the extreme, but often the responses are very, uh, surface level. So things like we now have, a. a, a a part of our app where it will alert you if you've spent X amount of time on the app. So it's a little screen alert time and you're thinking, well, I I see how you're trying to address the issue kind of, but you're not getting at the underlying problem. You're just looking at a symptom. It's like treating someone who is very, very sick, but all you can do is alleviate the symptoms, but not cure the sickness. It's the same sort of issue and uh when we're talking about platforms that have the capacity to make uh, uh massive changes in people's behavior over time that's not really good enough right that's it it we are we are having countless people go down dark pathways where it's very hard to turn back and there's they're going into communities where there's all this reinforcement, that's again supplemented by the plat- the way the platforms work in the first place. Uh, now, one of the other things I wanted to mention is that, and I t- we talked about it at the very beginning about how we don't know really the full scope of the effect of this. We know it's happening. We know that it's a problem. The interesting thing is seeing some disagreements among researchers who have really looked into this as to the extent. So one of the articles I I referenced with you, Bridget, was one that uh, an opinion piece in Wired by Emma Bryant. She was writing about the Oxford Institute. Uh, They had released a study that was showing an increase in uh, companies participating in uh, influence, influence campaigns is the way they word it. I hate these I hate these words that we use where we take the sting out of what's happening. It's an influence <laughs> yes. campaign. Although it does also bring give you a new appreciation of what it means to be an influencer, it makes it much yeah. more sinister. <laughs> yeah, Realistic influence, but sinister. An influence
1: campaign. Yeah, yeah. An influence campaign sounds like what an Instagram influencer does to get you to buy coffee or something. It really right, does take right. the sting out of it.
0: Yeah. Uh, and now, granted, you could argue that the same t- same ideas that are used by influencers to try and get their followers to go and buy whatever brand is supporting them are it's somewhat aligned with some of these other ideas, but I think we could agree that there's a spectrum of harm here <laughs> from from, oh, man, this drink that I bought is real nasty. I wish I hadn't bought it, To Oh, man, I found myself on the steps of the Capitol on January 6th. That boy, why am I sorry that I've done that? Um, that's a, that's a spectrum. Right there. It's what we call that. But what Emma Bryant was writing about was that. So Oxford Institute comes out and says that uh, that there's been an increase year over year of this form of of misinformation campaigns and the role of the Internet. And uh, Bryant's point was that we don't even understand the full scope of this. And it's more like we're paying more attention, so we're seeing more of this. But it doesn't tell us that there's actually been an increase year over year. What it tells us is that we're finally paying attention to a very real problem that's been around for a while. If I can make an analogy, it's kind of like when people started to see uh, what appeared to be autism rates rise. But in reality, it looked like it was more that the definition and the way of diagnosing autism had expanded to a point where we were just realizing the number of cases that actually exist, as opposed to it's increasing. It was more that, oh, no, it was here. We just didn't recognize a lot of this as autism. It was sort of the same argument that Emma Bryan is making in that, if you if you come back and you say, well, I looked at the ocean and we took uh, a bucket out and we filled it up five times, so we know there's at least five buckets of water in the ocean, you say, well, yes, but there's a lot else that's there that we don't know about yet, and we we haven't measured and we haven't quantified. And to me, that is, it's interesting. It shows an opportunity for actual real research and, and analysis and study into what's actually there as opposed to what's being reported. And it's frightening. It's so scary because we don't even like, like she says, you know, they, they looked at a a list of a couple of dozen different um, uh, platforms that were actively pushing out misinformation back in uh, 2019, I think it was. And she said, listen, in, in 2015, Cambridge Analytica was active in six different countries by itself that was just one and says, I, I've just started and I've made a list of more than 600 companies that are actively pus- pushing out influencer operations. So that's why I wanted to set that ground early on is it's not to say that what we're talking about uh, isn't relevant, but rather we can't speak in any any definitive scope because we just don't know what that scope is. And to that Means that we got to be on the lookout.
1: <laughs> yeah, and and I, I'm sorry to say this, but that Oxford study that that she references in that piece is incredibly influential, right? And so mm-hmm. it is. It's upsetting to see. I mean, the a name like Oxford, you expect a level of rigor, you know, in in the kind of research they're putting out, right? I'm not a researcher, so I can't, I can't really say. But the name Oxford, you're like, okay, that's going to be a, a very reputable, you know, it's a reputable place. It's got some street out, cred. It's got some it's got some research street, street cred. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> um and it's upsetting that that study was so influential in the disinformation space when a lot of the the points that it makes are really flawed. And she also, I have to say, she points out that the art, the, the study itself had a lot of typos and like spelling errors, which I would be yeah. so embarrassed if I put out an influential yeah. study and someone was like, actually, it was really sloppy. <laughs> I would be yeah. like
0: mortified. Her point is that the work is largely without meaning because it's creating a sense that we have metrics for something where, uh, you know, really it's, it's, it's such a small subsection of the overall problem that her point is that it doesn't really tell us anything, right? It just, it tells us of the reported incidents, but that unfortunately is not really meaningful if you're looking at a holistic approach to misinformation. And in fact, uh, you know, you know, and, and in fact, she was also pointing out that the study looked at countries where, the reporting mechanism might not be as vigorous as in others, like countries that don't uh, have the same sort of perspective on things like the freedom of the press, maybe it's state controlled press. You have places like China and Russia where the state has a large amount of influence on the media that goes out in those countries. Uh, it's, it, it it does show that, that it's dangerous to take any stance where you're making absolute claims because we just don't have the study to really do that justifiably. We, we don't have the evidence to back that up.
1: You're exactly right. We don't know the real scope of the problem and the sort of lay of the land. I also think something that she points out that's really important to keep in mind is that a lot of folks from a media perspective just weren't really talking about disinformation in a serious way like prior to like 2016, right? And so I think that an issue that we do have is people kind of getting up to speed with how we think about this issue in a holistic way. Because I think, you know, after 2016 and after, you know, the um, insurrection, I feel almost overnight this was an issue that was getting more buzz and more press and people were talking about it more. But with that really does come a need to take take a beat and Sort of analyze how we've got to this space and, and what, you know, try to put some more research around, you know, understanding what is actually going on. And I agree that we haven't really gotten there yet. Um, and I am happy that there are more people who are interested in this issue, but I don't want it to become an issue where people are claiming to have more knowledge than they do, or people are claiming that we know more than we do, because this this is very much still a developing problem that we're still sort of trying to get a hold on, I would say.
0: Yeah, yeah. We don't want there to be misinformation about how much misinformation there is. Right, because Yeah. <laughs> hey guys, Jonathan from the future again. We're going to take a quick break, but we'll be right back with more about social media platforms, algorithms, and radicalization. So this issue is getting to a a point where the concern is great and yet you also look at the tactics that are being used you realize that the tactics that are used are very old i mean you know the the approaches to extremism uh, to propaganda to misinformation that stuff we we've got a handle on that i mean you know, you, you can see numerous documentaries from everything from people who were experts in creating the propaganda during world war two, but on both sides of the conflict up to, you know, the ad executives. I mean, that's what mad men was all about was the idea of, of framing, you know, how do you frame information in a way to get people to do what you want them to do? Um, you know, there's the whole discussion about the uh, advertising about cigarettes was all about that. So, like, this is all old stuff. What's new is this this method of compartmentalizing communities and reinforcing the delivery system of that material. Uh, so, it's the identifying of a potential candidate the introduction of material to that candidate that will set them potentially down this pathway, and then the methods of reinforcing that and indoctrinating that person into more radical views. Interestingly, probably not surprisingly, uh, some of the studies I was looking at suggested that this is most effective for people who kind of have the lone wolf kind of approach to radicalism, that in cases where you're looking at Groups of extremists, typically the meat space is where that kind of radicalization still happens primarily. So, But I would also argue that the insurrection on January 6th, that that was in large part a lot of different individuals who all just sort of kind of converged on the same point, that it wasn't as much let's all join these online groups. And then we... Start to plan from there. It was that it was a bunch of individuals who started slowly gravitating toward one another through methods like this. And of course, there are other communities I mentioned before, uh, communities like Parlor or Parlay, if you prefer, uh, which, hey, they're back. That's great. Um, and that where, you know, there's not so much the algorithm there, it's, it's that it's a community that is actively reinforcing beliefs. So in that case, it's, it's almost more like the traditional method of radicalization, in the sense that you have uh, this, this self um, selected community that is following this process. So it, we have we have the whole spectrum here we still have the meat space stuff we have the online communities that are specifically geared uh if not specifically geared overtly at least effectively they're geared toward radicalization and then you've got the stuff that everybody's using that can lead you to that pathway so um how are you feeling Bridget? <laughs>
1: I mean, as you were describing the, the the issue, I almost felt this this pang in the pit of my stomach because we are up like we are up against so much. There are so many, you know, we have we have the uh, in real life, meat space organizing, radicalizing people. We have these platforms that are engineered to radicalize folks. The scope of the problem is quite large, and I often wonder like, and i I actually would be curious to know your thoughts. Do you think we'll ever tackle this? Like do you think that we will ever get to a place where it is not just the norm for folks to be having these kinds of experiences being radicalized online?
0: I think uh without without forcing the platforms through legislation, regulations, whatever it may be to take a truly active role and to and also to be incredibly transparent with how their algorithms work, we won't get there. And companies are going to be extremely resistant to that, obviously, because the algorithm is, that's the secret sauce for making the money. So you don't, the companies are very resistant to make that a transparent process, because for one thing, it could give a competitor the opportunity to beat them at their own game make a better algorithm that does essentially the same thing, but in a slightly different way. And then they're no longer king of the hill. Uh, I think it's going to be really tricky. I think the moves we're seeing in the U.S. government where there's the potential of breaking up some of these companies. I don't think that that's necessarily going to solve this problem. There's going to be there. There will need to be additional measures put in place for that to to be effective. Uh, otherwise all you're doing is taking one big piece and you're making a bunch of smaller pieces. But if they're all working the same way as the big piece was, we haven't really solved any issues. Um, I think everyone recognizes the amount of power these companies have there. That's undeniable. The question is, how do we deal with that? Uh, my answer from my, my, from a personal standpoint is not satisfying because I just disengaged. I quit Facebook, (laughs) but that, That's one person (laughs) and I would never tell anyone else, like you've got to quit Facebook. Uh, I might believe it really hard, but I can't tell them that because that's the way a lot of people stay in touch with their friends and family. It's the way a lot of people rely on Facebook for their own businesses. Uh, I am in a luxurious position where I can disengage and, uh, I got a dog. I'm okay. (laughs) I might not talk to my friends anymore, but I got a dog. Um, and I still got all those dog videos on YouTube too. So really I'm living <laughs> it up, but, but yeah, I mean like that's the, that's the thing is that these, this is a huge problem and like a lot of huge problems. There may not be a simple solution. There may not be one that is, uh, completely satisfying and it may be really messy to implement solutions that themselves could have unintended consequences that we'll have to deal with later. Um, the important thing is really acknowledging that problem, putting more effort into understanding the the scope and the impact of that problem, and making sure that our our energy for solutions is directed in the right place. Because without really understanding the scope and the the nature of the issue, the best we can do is try random solutions and hope they work. But with a deeper understanding, you can craft a pathway that is at least has a better chance of making a positive impact. That's kind of, it's the lame way of saying it, but the more I looked into this, the more I thought, we just don't have a deep enough understanding. And it's largely because we didn't take it seriously. Like you were saying, Bridget, I mean, before Brexit, people were aware that there are lies posted on the internet because people lie. You know, wherever people are, we're going to find falsehoods. But when Brexit happened, And after all the fallout about accusations that the support for Brexit was largely based off of uh, unsupportable claims, that's where it kind of started the snowball effect of, wow, we've really let this get to a place where we don't have a handle on it. um, And we honestly don't even know how bad it is. And we still don't five years later, so.
1: Yeah, I mean, I I feel very similarly, But I am hopeful that we are finally taking it seriously. I wish we had gotten here three years ago, five years ago, ten years ago about understanding the impact that this has, but I'm glad that we're here now. And I think what we need to do now is have these honest conversations, put money behind the research to actually understand what's going on, Um, because I think we're tackling it late. You know, I, I wish we had gotten there earlier, but I'm glad we're here now. And, you know, you talked about how you deleted Facebook. I still have Facebook. I I need it for work. Um, But I always say, you know, a lot of these issues are big, systemic. You know, we're talking about your Mark Zuckerbergs. We're talking about policy level things and it's very difficult to feel as an individual, like you have any impact over that. But, and that's true. But I think we can all take small steps in our individual lives to assess and be critical of the role that platforms play in our own media diets and how we use those platforms. And so, you know, I would also never tell anybody to delete Facebook, especially in a pandemic where you might not have the ability to see your friends every day, but you want to feel connected. But maybe you can delete Facebook from your phone so you're not carrying around a physical reminder of its presence on your person at all times, right? Maybe you only go on the browser and you and and you, on your laptop or whatever, and you're deciding when you're gonna engage with Facebook, right? Maybe you're like, I have a new rule in my house, no phones and no phones in the bedroom, right? You can. we can all find ways of having an impact on the way that Facebook plays out in our personal media diets and how we use it in our personal lives. And so while we may not be able to have a huge impact on the grip that platforms have on our democracy and our discourse, those are small things that we can all do. You know, if you're going to share something on Facebook, read it first, you know, before you comment on something, make sure that you read it, you know, just little things, little steps.
0: Agreed, agreed. I think uh, also we should point out the fact that you and I also host shows where we get the opportunity to reach out to our listeners and to suggest to them that they incorporate qualities like critical thinking. I always partner critical thinking with compassion. I think if you have one without the other, things don't go so well. But when you got both, you you don't go too wrong.
1: You can't you can't go wrong.
0: Yeah, you really just got to employ both of those things. And uh, I am so thankful that you joined me for this discussion. And I hope that our listeners really get an understanding. Like the reason we talk about this is because the, the stakes are very high. And clearly, if you recognize there are elements of friends or family of yours who appear to be maybe going down a path, you should seek out resources to help you and perhaps help them. It's a very delicate thing. I certainly am not an expert to tell you how to handle a situation and every situation is different. But that I'm seeing this real impact on people I know. There was a person that I I worked with years ago in a theatrical production. And several years ago, I saw him making some statements that kind of had him going down the men's rights, uh, pathway. And, uh, it, that was a, a big warning sign at the beginning, but it has since gotten worse. And I just wish that I had recognized things earlier and perhaps been a, a, uh, positive influence on his life to, not have him go down that pathway quite so wholeheartedly. Um, p- people are their own people; they'll make their own decisions. But we can always, you know, be supportive and helpful in certain situations. And one way you can be supportive and helpful for yourself and for others is to su- subscribe to "There Are No Girls on the Internet" because it's an incredible show. I don't just say that because I am the executive producer of that show. I say it <laughs> because it's. I say it because if I had no involvement whatsoever. It's still an amazing show. Uh, and in fact, I should, uh, I should point out, I have a very light touch on that show. That show <laughs> is amazing because of Bridget, because of Tari, and because of the incredible amount of work you you put into it. And uh, definitely go and check out Bridget's show. There are no girls on the internet. Um, see what all the, all, the, all the accolades are about because this is a show <laughs> that's received quite a few of them.
1: Oh, I mean, I couldn't, I couldn't do it without you, Jonathan, and Tari. This means so much coming from you, you know, the tech podcast guru.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I've got a poster of myself in the background. It's that's how important I am. I don't know if you noticed that, Bridget, but that's that's me back there. That's if you I ever wondered it. who's the kind of guy who hangs a poster of himself up. Well, it's it's me and apparently Donald Trump, I guess. That's I'm not in good. I'm not in good company, but I can't deny it. It's on the door. Uh Thank you guys for listening. Make sure you, again, subscribe to There Are No Girls on the Internet. Go check that out look at the list of shows because there have been some really incredible episodes. You've had some amazing guests on that show and, uh, it just makes me want to become a better interviewer. So I thank you for that too, because that's been very inspirational to me. And if you guys have any suggestions for future topics of tech stuff, you can reach out to me on Twitter. Yes, I'm, I'm still active there. And the handle to use is tech H S W. And I'll talk to you again really soon.